Hey, everybody. There's something quick I want to keep you in the loop on at the top of the show. I'm fortunate to have you as a consistent listener and subscriber to this podcast. You'll notice the last one I released was in the month of June. Anybody that's trying to build a big podcast would want to release consistently and weekly. For me, I never wanted to just be a podcaster, but I feel very fortunate that these podcasts have led me to serve large corporations and large private family companies where I produce interviews for their business. This has also led me to serve private families with engaging long-form interviews and documentaries that the family has for future generations of their family. I'm in the process of working hard to build this business, so I'm doing a monthly release on my podcast for the sake of time. You'll still find thorough research and good work, just like every other episode. And I'm grateful that you listen, and I want to keep you in the loop. I hope you have a great day. Thanks again for tuning in, and hope you have a great week. As that business evolved and grew all the way through the 90s, uh, something pivotal happened at the end of the, the 1990s and that we had to quickly become an importer of product, not a manufacturer of product. And we had to do this, quite frankly, to stay in business. Uh, Walmart in the mid-1990s discovered that they could go to China and get products for you know dirt cheap compared to what we were producing them for in the United States. And everyone had to follow. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. This podcast is also brought to you by My Story. If you stop and think about it, are there stories and experiences of someone you love that have been forgotten? If you could, would you go back into time and capture a series of conversations, family memories, and life experiences of someone you love that would be around to keep and share for generations to come? Here, I want you to hear one of our favorite clips from a World War II veteran. How come your brother didn't go to Auschwitz? He was lucky he, wasn't, he was not caught. They just didn't get him? No. Where, no. Did, like, where did he hide? Or what? They didn't. They lived normal life as possible. <laughs> they just didn't come to their house? Yeah. And they right. went to your sister's house? Right. What did right. it feel like that night when you found out? What better way to keep and remember the life of someone you love in their own voice for generations to come? Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. That's mystorytold.org to learn more. My guest today is Scott Felsenthal. I want to have Scott on this podcast because he and his family are obviously doing something right. 
only 3% of companies make it to the fourth generation, and their company, Whitmore, is one of them. Scott is the CEO of Whitmore, and it's a privilege to have him on this podcast. Whitmore started in Brooklyn, New York in 1946, and today, over 75 years later, it is running strong. This is a great story that goes deep into this family's history of evolving from a manufacturer to an importer when Walmart changed the game and they, like many others, had to stay alive, choosing not to take private equity to preserve their control for future generations of their family. Building a company that connects the story of what they do to its own people to navigate the great resignation among the workforce. Strategic acquisitions that continue to position the company in a strong position, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Scott Felsenthal. Scott, thanks for joining me on this Friday afternoon. Thanks, Sam. Awesome to be here. Takes a certain kind of person that likes to do something like this on a Friday afternoon when everyone else is on vacation. Hey, it sounds like a great way to end the week to me. I hear you. I feel the same way. You know, from what I've seen, less than 4% of businesses make it to the fourth generation. Is that a statistic that you've seen or is the number different? Yeah, you know, we generally hear 90 plus percent of generational businesses don't make it past that second generation. And uh, every time someone tells me that, it, it takes me back a little bit because it's just humbling and incredibly exciting at the same time to think that we're here in the fourth generation and We've been able to do it without uh, giving up any equity or outside of the, the family. So it's still 100% family owned and operated. And uh, our hope is to, to keep it going for as many generations as we can. From a growth standpoint, do you feel by not diluting your equity, has that cost you anything that you can think of? Good question. I, maybe we've had to limit ourselves at times on some opportunities that if we had some outside capital over and beyond what we we operate with in our everyday business maybe we could have done something a little different but i, I think it's really played to our advantage to remain a family run family operated company without any outside investors or private equity or any other party kind of looking over our shoulder and we've been able to to manage the business as a family unit and uh, it's worked well for us you know, obviously, I know it's worked well. So this is not a question rooted out of trying to create an alternative to what you said. I'm just curious from a context standpoint, is there an example that you can think of where maybe in the past where you had an opportunity for something where if you had diluted your stake, it might have created more scale or more growth, but at the end of the day, you didn't do it and you're happy with how things have played out? I think the best way I can answer that question is uh, years ago, my father was in the business, retired two years ago after 39 years. I uh, have two uncles as well. One retired six years ago. One is still active in the business today and probably has another four, five, six years before retirement. But we did explore something five, six years ago and we got pretty close to the finish line. And we all sat back and said, you know, this just doesn't feel right. And that was a, that's a moment I'll never forget because it, was, it wasn't about the numbers. It was just about the ongoing culture of the business and what we want it to be generations down the line. And we didn't want to be a company that was private equity owned unless there was some reason we absolutely had to do it. And it wasn't, you know, our interest was just keeping, keeping the family business going and and setting the business up for future generations to continue to uh, lead it. And it just didn't feel right at the time. What would that have led to? I don't really know, but looking back, I think it was a good decision that we avoided. 
doing that. What's it like from your standpoint, being fourth generation? Did you ever feel forced that this is what you were supposed to be doing? No, I never did. I mean, I always, obviously, in the back of my mind, thought one day I'd find myself in the family business, but it was never discussions at the dinner table about you have to do this. You know, it really wasn't until I was in probably my freshman, sophomore year in college where I decided, you know, I think I think this is the path I want to take. And I decided to go to law school, which is exactly what my, my father did before he decided to join the family business. So I kind of followed in his footsteps, went to law school and then uh, jumped right in. So no, it's, it's, I've always been involved. I remember as a little kid running around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff and seeing the business, but uh, never was any pressure applied to me in terms of what I had or had not to do. Is that the best way that you would see it to where somebody's given an option or have you seen it play out differently for other people that end up working out? Yeah, no, I, I think that's the best way. I kind of relate it to, you know, my daughters. I have a 12 and 9-year-old daughter and, you know, one of them wanted to play tennis and I was a tennis player, played in college. And so that was kind of my life growing up. And you come across parents in sports where it is a forced thing where their, their kid has to do this or has to uh, win or has to practice five times a week. And, you know, went through that experience with my daughter where she loved tennis for a couple of years. And then she really just kind of moved on in her head. And if I had been the parent and my wife had been the parent and said, I'm sorry, you have to keep doing this. You're going to do it. It doesn't lead to a good place. So if you extrapolate that to a family business dynamic where you really want to keep things peaceful and, you know, harmony, it's really a, in my mind, a bad recipe to force a family member to join a business. It really has to be out of their own desire. And really, they have to bring something unique to the business. There can't be a sense of entitlement for just any family member to, to join. And that's really important to, to who we are and how we've operated the business over the years. And if a family member is going to join, they got to work their way up. I did when I started in 2009. And they've got to bring something to the business that's you know unique. And that's really important to our recipe. And how many people do you have all in? We have 150-ish employees. Um, we've got a team in China that does a lot of work for us. And we've got a manufacturing operation that we run in Monterrey, Mexico. And on the family side, it's myself, uh, my uncle, and he has two kids uh, in the business. One is on the sales side of the business. One is more in uh, an operational role. So curious about Brooklyn in 1946. Y'all opened that with garment bags as a manufacturing, right? And then you had a retail shop in the Empire State Building. Is that true? Somewhat. We had the business started my great-grandfather in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we were the pioneer, really, of, as you mentioned, garment bags. The Empire State Building came into play as a sales office. We had a concentrated sales force in the Northeast at the time. And as the business grew through the, the 1900s, and we had a, a 13, it was the 13th floor of all floors uh, of the Empire State Building. And um, we kept that office in place until the early 2000s, I believe. Uh, so it was just kind of a centralized sales office. Now, fast forward to today, we have 10 sales managers around the country, very strategic locations uh, and not a central office. The central office is, is here at Whitmore where people come you know, quite frequently, but uh, yeah, that Empire State Building was a, uh, another neat experience um, as a kid. I remember visiting and doesn't exist today, but it's an integral part of our history. Yeah, so I guess from a garment bag standpoint, it's a suit bag for clothes. 
So this was after World War II, and things were just either th- from an entire standpoint, from a professionalism standpoint. You said your great great grandfather be my great grandfather. Okay, so your great grandfather was an entrepreneur, and he just saw something from a travel standpoint, a convenience standpoint, and a quality standpoint to preserve a tire for traveling salesmen. This is after the rollout of more mass automobiles and things like that. Is that just what he saw? I mean, do you have any context for him back in 1946? And the reason I asked this, just to preface, it seems that your family has never stopped innovating and never stopped understanding what society wants and what it needs. And so I just found it fascinating to go back to the beginning and to think about where things were from a time, place, and history standpoint then. And it seems pretty impressive outside looking in. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's hard to sometimes piece together the the early days, but based on what we know, it was, he kind of uh, became entrepreneurial in the luggage, dabbled in luggage and dabbled in, you know, garment bags. And ultimately the garment bag venture proved to be the one that he saw opportunity in. And uh, the name Whitmore, uh, his, my great grandfather's name was Charles Whitman. He was believed to have a, a partner with the last name of Moore. So that's how the name came to be. But yeah, so yeah, that's how the business started product-wise. And then over the years, the business moved. Family moved down south, 1950s. And then in the 19, early 1960s, built and opened a manufacturing facility in Earl, Arkansas, about 45 minutes uh, west of Memphis. And that became really a facility that we expanded, significantly expanded our capabilities and product lines into more storage and organizational products. And as that business evolved and grew uh, all the way through the 90s, uh, something pivotal happened at the end of the, the 1990s and that we had to quickly become an importer of product, not a manufacturer of product. And We had to do this, quite frankly, to stay in business. Uh, Walmart in the mid-1990s discovered that they could go to China and get products for dirt cheap compared to what we were producing them for in the United States. And everyone had to follow. So we did. And that's when my uncle that's currently in the business joined the business in the the mid-90s. And he oversaw our effort to transition literally 90% one year we were manufacturer and then 90% the next year we were an importer. I think this was 1996, 1997, happened that quickly. And we stayed at the Earl facility until 2008 when a tornado knocked down a third of the facility that allowed us. And we were kind of thinking, and this was before my time, but I know what was going on in the the business, we were, you know, we needed to relocate to tap into better labor. The labor pool was just getting a bit tapped out. And in Earl, Arkansas, we would have high-level interviews come in town and they'd get halfway to the to the office and turn around and say, I'm not doing this. So we knew we had to take some steps to to relocate and kind of think bigger in terms of who we wanted to be when we grow grew up. And a tornado fortunately did not hurt anybody, but hurt the facility enough where we were able to to get some good insurance proceeds and, and did what we did here in, in South Haven, which has fostered a whole new leg of growth for our business. Well, there's several things there that I'd, I'd like to double back on. I guess first things first. So going back to after World War II in 1946 and going back to being a manufacturer in New York with an office there, you said, I guess the revenue stream that stuck the most in the market would have been garment bags. And so that's what Whitmore ran with, I guess, really leading up what, into the 60s or the 70s? Is that fair? 
Yeah, I would say early 60s and then the, the product line really started expanding with our manufacturing operation. And that was your manufacturing operation that you opened in Earl. And that's when you did, I don't want to say it because I feel like I won't do it justice. But that, that's when we began to, to really expand into all kinds of soft storage organizational items, into hangers, into just other products for the home. And that's, you know, there were other companies that were that were starting to do this back then, but Whitmore was really the pioneer in the soft storage garment industry. So whether it's under bag uh, storage that goes under your bed or the hanging garment bags or clothes hangers, uh, laundry bags, I mean, just a, a wide variety of things that, that expanded uh, over the years. And yeah, the ability for us to manufacture when we did. And, and originally we were, we were selling into the department store landscape and that was kind of our core customer base in the 60s, 70s. You think of Sears, if you think of other department store type of chains, those were those were who our business was with. And we had to make a switch um, during the second generation of our family to really begin to focus on mass retail. And that was a that was a pivotal switch for the business as well to go from mostly department store driven to, to mass retail business. But that was a great decision, you know, in, in retrospect, because today we are a a mass market uh, supplier of home storage and organization products. And it all started in, in you know, the 70s. What was the switch back in the 70s with the home's good and organization and all these different ideas and creative ways to add value to your home and create a better daily experience at home? Is there anything that you can speak to specifically that like opened it up for that kind of demand? I don't know, honestly. I think that the family found this this niche kind of in the early days and ran with it and uh, continued to get the sales traction and build the relationships within Sears and within other department store chains uh, that allowed us just to keep expanding and growing within this segment of the business. So I think there was an opportunity there. The family saw it and that's how we really began to grow. And then you're pretty much saying in the 90s, because of Walmart and what they were manufacturing in China, you had to dramatically and aggressively change the course of the business within a year to stay in business. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. they uh, What Walmart did in those days, you had to follow and by them going to China and, and getting you know far cheaper goods into the US, it, it really not only put a lot of businesses out of business, domestic manufacturers, but it forced us to very quickly make a decision. Are we going to continue to grow and evolve or are we going to call it a day? And obviously at the time, the family wasn't ready to call it a day. So we aggressively positioned our, our manufacturing operations and built some very, very important relationships in Asia that are still critical today at that time. And uh, that, that really set us out on a on a path of growth that that continues here 20, you know, 25 years after we became a real importer. Does it make it feel less painful or if there was any guilt, any less guilt about ramping up import and manufacturing in China or Mexico or wherever else, because you knew that that was the only option to stay solvent and to make it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, you always want to do what you can domestically because you want to support your own, your own country and economy and workers and, but at the end of the day, if the decision you're faced with is you're out of business or you're producing the product somewhere else, you know, you're going to produce the product somewhere else. And we've brought some stuff back to the U.S. Uh, we strategically opened a, a factory in, in Mexico four years ago. 
that's going really well today that is producing ironing boards. And we continue to look strategically at opportunities to bring things back to this side of the world. But at the end of the day, it's the relationships, the manufacturing capabilities, the infrastructure of the Asia, Asian countries is, is superior in many ways to the rest of the world. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I think uh, a couple things. Number one, the Chinese and other Asian countries, they are very, very smart business people. They know how to be efficient in what they do. They know how to operate operations in a very effective, streamlined manner. But more importantly, the infrastructure is there to support the business coming into the United States. So what I mean by that are the ports, the the capacity for containers to get out of the country as opposed to, you know, India is a country that a lot of people will import from for different things, but infrastructure there is a, is a bit of a mess. So China is just kind of thought of as a, for some good reason at times, you know, thought of as a country that just puts out poor quality product and, you know, doesn't deserve to have its items sold here in the United States. But at the end of the day, if you're working with the right suppliers that are doing the right thing, that are running operations that are socially compliant and keeping their books well and doing things within the law, then really at the end of the day, you're, you feel good as a company because you're not only ensuring you remain competitive for your own family and employees' benefits to, to continue to have a livelihood, but you're also indirectly employing a lot of people overseas. And that, you know, something about that feels good. We have, I say we have 150 employees on the Whitmore side. But really, we have probably 5,000 employees around the world working on Whitmore product. So there's something about that that feels pretty good, too. From a due diligence standpoint or when you're evaluating something, how do you sift through that to look at the conditions, to look at the treatment, to look at the facilities, all those things in detail? And how much of that can actually affect the decisions you make about who you will have these partnerships with? Yeah, there's things that would affect it greatly. We Going back to the idea of relationships, we have um, key relationships that were formed in the 90s that continue today that we that we trust. We've built relationships there. We we know if we if we get them involved on a certain product or product line, they're going to find a factory, use their own factory. They're going to get it done the right way. But we also have a team in China, six individuals uh, right now, and they are constantly working directly with factories, making sure they understand our our expectations, our model, uh, what we expect, and they work closely with our with our teams here on the quality and compliance side and product development side, just to make sure that we are aligning ourselves with the right partners. It's as an importer, that's I think any importer would would tell you this that that is the most crucial thing you can do as a company is make sure you are doing business with the right people, especially because it's you know thousands of miles away. It's just it's critical. So really, Walmart pushed everything out, not really the everyday American entrepreneur in a lot of cases. Walmart did, and then everyone else had to follow suit to stay to stay alive. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, that is how the world economy shifted to, to China so quickly, uh, thanks to, to Walmart's efforts. And once Walmart went, a lot of other retailers started to, to try to do so as well that had, the, that had the scale and capacity to do it. There's a lot of a lot of retailers today that occasionally, you know, when we get asked who our biggest competitors are, our answer are retailers themselves. And not all retailers, but the Walmarts, the Targets, several other bigger ones, they do have capacity and scale where they do have teams in China. And sometimes they do go direct to factories and try to cut out the middleman like a, like a Whitmore. But 
at the end of the day, the way our operation works, we're so vertical with everything we do. They often find their ways back to us. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but retailers can be your biggest competitors. And it's a, that's a challenging thing to understand and accept if you're on the, the supplier side like we are. Would you say that the only way to really be justified in charging a higher price or premium is a product manufactured in a more expensive environment like the United States, only if there's a customer experience or customer service interface with the customer? Or have you seen a brand or a product like yours that has worked for them to be manufactured and charge a premium where there's no really direct customer interface retail with the service component? Yeah, couple components to that question there. I think number one, it's all about marketing. You can have, let's say we have two of the exact same products, but you, you put it behind two different labels or packages. And one is a very aspirational type of package like we strive to be with our with our packaging. And then another one is a, is a very bland package. Well, as a consumer, your perception is going to be that what's in the the package that shows a more inspirational image on it or aspirational image on it is going to be a a more high-end product and you can arguably charge more for it. But to your point, we've never been a business that has a good service component up until 2017 when we made our first ever acquisition of a service organizing company called Neat Method. They're a professional organizing company with 90 plus franchisees in North America. And we've worked together to not only scale that service business, but also allow them and facilitate them creating a very unique line of products that they sell from their website that we uh, ship direct to consumer out of our facility here. So 2017 is when our business really became multidimensional through this service aspect that is done uh, through this company that we acquired. And when that happens to your point, like it drives value for everybody. If there's a service component to a product that becomes much more valuable, at least perceived to be valuable in the eyes of the consumer. How long did that acquisition, how long was that in the works? Yeah, I think looking back at that time period, 2016, I, I really wanted to think about a way to diversify some of our revenue. And the obvious thing in my mind was, let's let's look at the service sector. We, we don't have any of that in our business and there could be something that made sense. So we, we found this company, I reached out, sent an email, hopped on a phone call. And I think once we had that first phone call, we knew this is something we all needed to make happen for for both companies and it moved very quickly and things have gone really well uh, with that acquisition. We're really happy with how, how well they're doing, but it, it was a, we were kind of first movers with that concept because since then the service organizing industry has really blown up. There's Netflix shows, there's other things going on that have just really put that industry in the front and center in the consumer's head. And it was a good time for that acquisition. It was a brand that had been, built uh, and founded in 2010 or 2011 and was slowly scaling. And they saw us as an opportunity to scale even quicker. And we saw them as, a, as an opportunity to help them do so and to bring products to what they do. And it's worked out really well. So here again, this is another example of the family business, the large family business. Talked about 160 people within the company, been around since 1946. Talked about probably 5,000 total people around the world working on products right now. But in the age of simplicity, of independence, versatility as a consumer, the entrepreneurs that built out this franchise company, Neat Method, had proven the model and it essentially helped people from a convenience standpoint and an organization standpoint. And you saw an opportunity 
to get more entrenched, I mean that in a positive way, in the, in the day-to-day lives of consumers around the country. And so then, therefore, this was a direct line of distribution for your products. So once again, it's just another iteration cycle of creativity, risk, and entrepreneurship. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. And I think uh, we're, we're a company that as we grow, we like to stay small. And what I mean by that is entrepreneurial and you know, no hierarchy, no red tape. You know, we just got to get stuff done. And when we see an opportunity, we go after it. And this was an opportunity we saw not only to, to help their core business grow, but also to implement products into what they're doing. And yeah, as you said, like it was, a, as we call it around here, it's like it was a perfect marriage between service and product. And yeah, it was a, another example in our history of where we saw something, we went after it, and we are reaping uh, some benefits of, of doing so. What does it take from a family standpoint? You talked about your uncle getting in. You talked about your father, right, who was your predecessor at 39 years. You talked about your great-grandfather who founded the company. Talked about key moments, moving things down south. Talked about moving things to a different state. You talked about flipping the business model fast from domestic production, manufacturing, to mostly importing, but strong relationships. And then obviously having your own direct facility in Mexico. And now you're talking about another acquisition here. For a family to stay on track and for a family to stay engaged and for a family to know their role, like your uncle, you said, coming on and really spearheading in a quick way of building international relationships you know, once again, that seems that that falls in the 4% alone, not to mention the actual 4% of staying in business, which I guess they're contingent on each other. What has to happen for a family to work well together like that, especially when you got so many different people involved? Well, I can speak to it from how it's worked for us because, gosh, I got friends who were in their own family businesses and, and a bad apple comes in from the family and a year later, they're, they're out of business, which is you know, terrible to hear. But what has worked for us really is a model that the third generation of our business had. And that was, it was three brothers. Each brother, one being my dad, was very focused in their own lane. And even today, like you know, I'm very focused in one area. My uncle's very focused in another area. There's days go by where we don't even you know, speak or need to speak. And then there's other weeks that go by where we're talking every day about some really important stuff. So we, as a family, I think we, we, we have our roles, we know our roles, we try to help each other in those roles, but we let each other own those parts of the business. And that way we, we really don't step on each other's toes and we come together when big decisions need to be made. And otherwise it's just business as usual. So that's kind of the secret that's worked for us. We've been very blessed to have that kind of family dynamic. I know that's not possible with with a lot of families. We've been very blessed uh, to have that dynamic within our business. That's uh, really what I consider a, a secret recipe for, for where we are today. That's neat. I looked at, and I know you said retailers are your competitors, but home products, their revenue looks to be about $200 million. Sterlite, these are these are companies that do similar things to you, correct, in some form or fashion. Yeah, we we really, from a company standpoint, we really don't have maybe one other business out there that does exactly what we do, kind of on the same scale. But there's a lot of little companies that kind of might just just do laundry products, just do totes, just do ironing products. I mean, it's a very fragmented market, and where where we are strategically competitively. Our advantage is that we uh, have products, our catalog is across all, really all areas of storage, organization, and laundry accessories. And 
just this past year, we launched into to bath organization and storage products, which is a extension of our categories for us. And we don't do that lightly. We, we, we don't launch into new categories unless we truly have the expertise to do it. And we brought someone on to, to really help us with that. But yeah, we just have, we have such breadth across our catalog that uh, retailers constantly are looking to consolidate the vendors they work with, especially during economic times like we're, we're facing now and pandemics and recessions. And once that becomes the mindset of a retailer, that generally plays into our advantage because they can, what they can order by using 20 other vendors, they can order just through us. And that's a lot less work for them to work with uh, less vendors than it is more. So definitely a, a good thing for us. Yeah. And I didn't finish on the Sterlite deal, but which I, you explained that, but they're around 341 million. I saw the total market looked like 13.5 billion for this space, and which is a smaller number compared to other industries. So my point in saying that all is, it seems that the only way to continue to thrive for generations is to continue to innovate and create and have a balance sheet to be able to move. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, is, it, uh, is it frustrating, like feeling like you're operating within a tighter market to a certain degree? We don't see it that way. We see a lot of opportunity. We, you know, we're a private company, so we don't really disclose our numbers at, at too granular level, but we're, we'll be approaching 150 million here in a couple of years, I hope. And there's a lot ahead of us. There's a lot we can do with our existing retailers to grow the business organically. There's a lot we can do from an acquisition standpoint. There's a lot we can do from new categories uh, that we're just not in yet. So no, we don't see it as limiting at all. We see it as a whole lot of opportunity out there for us. Thinking about being with potentially one company for your entire career, does that sound like a fun and exciting thing or does that ever feel like a, a boring or locked in thing? Great question. I'm passionate about it. I don't see my, I don't see that changing. I mean, we have, it's incredible. We have employees that have been here almost 60 years, some employees. And we've had uh, probably five plus employees that have been here 40 years, probably another five that have been here 30 years. You know, employees that have literally worked for the first generation of our family, second, third, and now fourth is still here. And you know, I, I don't know how many companies can say that, but that is just, you know, when I sit back and think about that, it just blows my mind. And it speaks a lot to, I think, our family and the, the type of environment we've tried to create for people over the years and our culture and how we really, we're not just a business that says we want everyone to feel like a family. We truly are. We operate that way. Everyone is a family, not uh, so many businesses today. People are just numbers and that's just not the way we operate. But yeah, I mean, it's... It, I hope I'm here my whole career. I hope the career doesn't go until I'm 90, but hopefully my whole professional career is, is continuing to, to drive this business forward and, and setting it up for my kids and, and the fifth generation down the line. In this day and age, where we're at and what you hear and what you see, to get people to work four, five, six decades, what are the top things that you believe in or you see that you've actually got to continue to do or improve upon to make that more and more of a reality? Well, I think the what's so important today is just providing two things, providing purpose, making sure people are understanding that what you're doing is helping people in their everyday lives. And then number two, creating an environment where flexibility and empowerment are you know, every employee feels like they have those two things. 
And we're not a business that can be a remote business. And I'm not talking about remote work flexibility. I'm talking about flexibility in terms of family stuff outside of work that people need to, to be involved in. The ability to, to come in earlier or stay later. Like it's just people, I've learned people really appreciate that most in terms of what we offer and what companies as a whole can offer in terms of flexibility. And um, it doesn't matter what generation you're a part of. I mean, one challenge here that we've had over the years is, as I mentioned earlier, we have every generation of our business existence are here. We have, you know, the millennials, we have baby boomers, we have Gen Z, Gen and getting all those um, generations to, to mix well together and to understand the same technology and to understand how to work with each other in a way that resonates with, with each of them. It's been a fun challenge, but it's been a real challenge. And, you know, seeing some of that come together and, and you know, our 75-year-old employees sitting down and collaborating with our 20-year-old employee. I mean, it's it's cool to see. Yeah. Um, so I think continuing to create that environment, one of flexibility, empowerment, where people know they can make their own decisions uh, without having to have, you know, 10 meetings to, to do something. It all kind of bubbles up in a way that makes it a really good work environment, in my opinion. And do you see that through data, too? Yes. I mean, not specific to our business, but specific to today's workforce. You're hearing the term great resignation now, where a lot of people are are leaving companies post-COVID because they realize they could work out of their living room for a company and that's the job they want to have. So they're leaving their traditional jobs and, and working for a fully remote company. And that's been kind of dubbed as the great resignation. We're not seeing that here because I think we already have a, a strong environment in place. And I, quite frankly, like as a company being all together, like on a daily basis, weekly basis, there's nothing more important. I think all of our employees would rather not be remote employees like we had to be some during COVID because the production and, and just the synergies we get out of each other being together is so important to our business um, because of how connected it is. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. How do you push the tempo but also be patient and strategic with a company with you being the fourth generation CEO and then also knowing that you hope there's a fifth generation while still having strong performance? I think the most important thing for me is making sure there are people far smarter than me in the room and in the company. And, you know, you never want to be the smartest in the room and God knows that's, you know, I, 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 
prefer to be the, the, the dumbest person here if that means we have the right team around us. So for us, it's really about making sure we have the right people. And if we have the right people that buy into our culture, the business is going to continue to thrive and do well. You know, making sure people understand it's okay to make mistakes uh, and just don't repeat them. So it's a we operate very much in a tough, tough love uh, type of environment where we we truly like it's okay if people make mistakes and we want them to make mistakes because uh, that's how they're going to grow and people understand that. You know, if you work at a retailer that I won't name or. Uh, some other businesses I'm thinking about and you make a mistake, um, you know, that might be your last chance. But but here we view that as an opportunity for people to grow and we want people to operate outside the bounds of their job description and constantly learn about the the business in different areas that they don't know about. And, and kind of, like I said earlier, like bubbling all that to the surface creates an environment that people really enjoy coming to. And the nature of retail is one where every day is different. You know, we got to bend over backwards for our customers in order to keep business sometimes. And that can be very frustrating to our employees, but at the same time, they also realize that's what it takes. And it's that hard nose, grit and grind, you know, Memphis grit and grind type of DNA that's in our blood. And perseverance and resiliency that, that this company continues to demonstrate today that allows us to keep being successful and people that adopt that and really buy into it are the ones that are going to be here for the 40, 50, 60 years. And I guess what you're saying is if they see it out of the family, they see it out of whichever generation, they're going to follow suit or at least the right ones. Yeah. I mean, our, our philosophy is, you know, you can't expect others to do what what we don't do as as leaders and family. And we like to set the tone, you know, we're not a, we're not a family that's going to have uh, secretaries doing stuff for us. I mean, we're in the warehouse every day, we're in meetings every day. And it's so important to, to be involved in our business directly, because that's uh, what sets the tone for sure. Going back, you talked about two things in this today's age, purpose and flexibility. Can you give an example to each and how you try to instill that? I'm just curious from an operator standpoint, how do you make that known or how do you try to make that known? Yeah, I think for us, particularly, you know, we probably have half of our employees are warehouse employees and every day they come into work, they move boxes around, they pack them, they get them ready for trucks to pick up, but they don't really know what's in the boxes. And, you know, a year ago, it kind of clicked on me, you know, that's a problem. Like these, let's really bring, it doesn't matter what role people are, are playing, let's make sure they know what they're moving in those boxes. Let's make sure they know the benefit that our products are having on people in their everyday lives. And the fact of the matter is once we started educating our, our warehouse staff on what's truly in those boxes, you just see a whole new level of curiosity and engagement and almost like a, a button being switched where the passion that they have and that they are contagious with, with those around them for the business accelerates. And uh, that, that was a big learning moment for me because, you know, you come into work, you go through the motions, warehouse managers, they, you know, they got to get the work done, but let's educate our employees. Let's make sure they know what we're doing. I mean, every house in this country has some kind of shoe rack. Every house in this country has some kind of laundry bag. Every house, you know, like our products are in everybody's homes, um, whether it's, you know, it's not our brand in everybody's homes, but our product is. And we're, we're, our products are impacting the daily lives of people around the world. And you know, getting people to understand that, buy into that, it makes the product development process more fun because they know what they're developing is going to be utilized by a consumer to, to make their life easier. 
And the more we educate our employees with that and the more we help them to understand what exactly is that we're doing and how we're making people's lives easier, it really helps them buy into the overall uh, vision of the company. So how do they see it? What do you do? Just get out there and open up the boxes and talk about it for a second? We put lots of pictures in the warehouse. We, you know, we have a warehouse employee hallway that we just lined with product pictures. I mean, just anything we can do. We have an internet site where they can interact and see, you know, things we sell and anything we can do to just show them, you know, what, what we do is, has been a, a positive step for us. From a flexibility standpoint, what does that look like? To us, that means uh, we have a campaign here that's called Be Human. And what, what we mean by that is, we're all humans. We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. We all have faults. And let's all be ourselves and let's respect each other. And part of being human means that uh, you might need to be out for a week just because you're worn out and tired. Or you might need to be out for a couple of days because family's coming in from out of town. And, you know, we don't care. We want you to, we, we want our employees to to have a life outside of work and to know that, you know, they're not in a cell, if you will, once they come here. I mean, it's a very flexible environment. And I think flexibility has played such a key role into why people want to be here. And, you know, it's simple things, right? It's on birthdays, everyone gets something in the mail at their house. On anniversaries, they get extra money on their check. On, uh, you know, just little things like that. Today we have... uh, Mempops coming out and and giving the warehouse staff all you know popsicles because it's so darn hot uh, in Memphis right now. Um, so it's just the little things add up. And when you show people that they're people and not just some number on a P and L statement, you know it, it makes such a difference. It sounds so easy, but there's just so many companies that just that just don't do it that way. And uh, it's not the environment we want to have here. Has it evolved to that over time, or has it? I mean, from a societal standpoint, and even knowing entrepreneurs and operators that a lot of people read about here around different parts of the country, around different parts of the world, you start to continue to see, A, that mentality that you have sometimes when you feel like you got to build it, you got to start it from scratch, you can't sit back because you, you know what it's like to start something from scratch. And then you see entrepreneurs with an amazing reputation that build incredible things and of companies, organizations of very large size. You also kind of understand a lot of times how the experience is inside or what that can be like. And it's not always the way that you described it for y'all. But you look at what y'all have done for four generations now, innovation, the flexibility. Is that more what society needs because society has gotten less rigorous or less comfortable with situations and working experiences? And so you adapt to that, or is this more rooted by science and human experience? And so therefore, you're actually serving people in a way that actually creates more commitment, and it also helps with productivity and turnover and all those things. All right, we're getting deep here. This is good. <laughs> well, I figured you'd have an answer. Yeah. Um, so one one thing we we talk about a lot that I think, yeah, everything in life to me is about perspective. You know, something can be as bad or as good as you want it to be, as long as you frame it in your head, the way you, you, you know, that's going to be helpful for you. And we don't want employees to view this as work. I mean, it's work, right. But we want employees to view this as not something they have to do, but something they get to do. And when you, when you frame in your head that you get to get up at 6.30 in the morning and get ready for work, like you get to do it. You don't, you don't have to, you can make the decision to stay in bed and 
you know, quit your job and go do something else. But we're blessed to get to do something. You're blessed to get to talk to amazing people around the city and country about things they do. We are blessed to be able to get up and sweat in a hot warehouse and tackle the challenges of retail as frustrating as it can sometimes be. Like we get to do it. And that's when you put things in that mindset instead of something that you have to do, it really changes the perspective. And that's what we work hard here with our employees on. We don't want them to feel like, yeah, it's work. Of course it's work. And it's not every day is going to be a a run in the park, but by changing your perspective, you're going to be here. You know, you might as well be positive. You might as well spread love to your coworkers and, you know, think about it in terms of you get to do it. There's not, there's a lot of people out there that don't get to do anything. And we get to do something that's providing good for other people through our products. And uh, to me, that's a very strong way to, to kind of think about your question. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying, you know, given the fact that if at the end of the day, you're supposed to, to work, to make money, to provide for your family, and to hopefully feel a part of something or a productive contributor to society. And I know not everybody believes any of that. And I don't mean that from a political standpoint. I just, I'm talking about, but from an underlying principle, if you take that as an understood thing, then, well, in order to work, to make money, to provide for your family, and to be a part of something and to feel connected to something, you start there and then you try to make it as great of an experience as you can for the person knowing that the industry itself is challenging and it's very competitive and it can be rigorous. But at the same time, you try to make it the best that it can possibly be. So as a result, the people that are part of your company, they're going to be a part of something. They're going to be able to provide for their family. They're going to get treated in a way that gives them that experience. So if you believe in those things and if, if those are choices that you want to make, then you're going to be the best place to do it. And that's what you are pushing for, the family. Yeah, we want people that see it that way. And sometimes they don't. And we, you know, through conversation, we get them there. Sometimes it's, you know, you can't really change how someone is, is hardwired in their DNA. So it's tougher. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is we're around our coworkers more than our family, generally speaking. And there's just no place for drama, no place for triangulation where you're, you know, just creating drama out of nothing. And uh, we just try to breed positivity and um, reinforcing the, the gratefulness that we get to wake up and we get to do this today as opposed to have to do it and you know, perspective can change the way you, you look at things just by changing a simple word, you know, change have to get and, you know, suddenly you see things differently. So we, we try to have those kind of conversations with employees that, that maybe haven't bought in fully to what we're doing or, or might be going through some other issues, but perspective is really, really key for us. That's awesome. I mean, obviously I'm biased because this is my podcast and I asked you to be on here. But I, I feel for those people that are this far into the interview and in the episode, I really think you're truly understanding what it takes to build a company that's going to last for generations. And you haven't said these things like I figured it all out, rah-rah about us, but you look at such an overwhelmingly negative statistic the way it started. I feel like this is very rich with applicable insights and experiences. And also you see the difficulty because the first generation, it's a scrap to get it. And it's a scrap to keep it there. And it's a scrap to just make payroll. And 
it's a scrap to go through really hard things with a, you know, leverage balance sheet, whatever it might be. And so this is really good stuff. From where we're at, from a societal standpoint, can you talk about Amazon? Can you talk about their growth, their development, where they're at now, maybe what that's been like for y'all and how you see it in the future, given their size and scope now? Yeah, we were we were fortunate enough to begin our relationship with Amazon in 2009, 2010. And, and our relationship with Amazon is not a third-party seller. We sell product directly to merchants, buyers at Amazon who you know order the product in bulk and take it into the Amazon warehouses and fulfill it to their customers. That ride was a great ride until 2015, 2016, uh, when they decided they needed to to start shifting their thinking to actually making a profit. You know, so many, so many of these technology companies, which is what Amazon is. A lot of people think oh, Amazon's a retailer. They're, they're a technology AWS. company. AWS. Yeah, exactly. They're a technology company. And they've become much more difficult to work with as each year goes by. And that's because, and to their credit, I, I suppose, I mean, they want to make money. They're a business. They want to make money for a long time. They just reinvested every penny they had into creating, you know, drones, which are now starting to deliver product in California. I read this morning and, but it's, it's a very, it's a love hate, I guess is the best way I describe it. You love them because they drive a lot of volume to your business. You hate them because they are one of those retailers that they, they have the, the, the privilege of having so much data at their fingertips that they, they run off to factories and, and knock off products all the time and put it under their, you know, their own brand names. And they do that because of the data of the products that you sold and they can see consumer behavior around them. So they're very difficult to do business with. They create a lot of challenges in this area specifically as it relates to warehouse labor. And they have, you know, as you know, many warehouses around the country, but a lot now in the Memphis area and their labor rates are, are crazy expensive, which is you know, a warehouse employee might see that and think, oh man, that's amazing. I'm going to go work there. Well, I can spit off 10 scenarios off the tip of my tongue right now where we've lost a warehouse employee to Amazon. And three months later, they call back and say, hey, we had no idea what we were getting into, you know, despite making $4 more an hour or something like that. Like the environment is just terrible. So we hear a lot of those stories that makes me, it's troubling for sure, because it's, it's hard to really understand what goes inside on inside those buildings. I mean, you, you can't be a company that's not just pedal to the metal and getting product to the consumer the next day without, you know, having some pretty cutthroat operational procedures in place. So I think inside the walls of Amazon warehouses, it's a, it's a rough environment. Uh, not that they're not a great company. They're obviously a, a, an amazing company, but it's become more difficult to do business with them over time. And we'll just see what the future brings with their business. But clearly, they're going to continue to think big and do things big. And I saw a patent last year, and I haven't heard more about this, but they they filed a patent for an underground delivery system where there's tunnels underground that lead to every person's home. And they deliver packages through these tunnels. And, you know, you see something like that and you just you're like, oh, my God, that is just such such big thinking. But, you know, maybe in 10 years when we do this podcast again, uh, that's a reality, right? We're getting boxes through tunnels under our houses to our front door. I don't know. Um, so they're an, they're an unbelievable company. Obviously, they've done incredible things. 
it'll be interesting to see what develops. We use a freight forwarder that handles all of our, you know, overseas containers and imports uh, called Flexport. Flexport's a, a major, uh, one of the biggest freight forwarders uh, in the world right now and growing very rapidly. And they just hired the uh, former... Dave Clark. Yes. And their goal is to be the, the biggest, they want to be the biggest supply chain company in the world, essentially, in, in the next five years. And it's going to be interesting to see how FedEx and UPS and Flexports and all these other businesses continue to evolve in the supply chain world. Because as you know, supply chain has seen a lot of disruptions the past couple of years. And it's kind of one of those industries that's ripe for technological disruption. And Flexport's doing it with technology. And, you know, I'm sure FedEx and, and UPS are going down a technological path as well. But it'll be interesting to see how all those things converge in the, the decade to come and how FedEx does in that race. But yeah, it's interesting dynamic for us because we, we want to use them more, but it's just not maybe it's specific to kind of our type of business. It's just not a, not a competitive environment. So you're able to run, and for those that don't know Flexport, Founded by Ron Peterson, and as you just said, Scott, just hired Dave Clark, complete startup, recently had like an $8 billion valuation, now it might even be higher, and it's essentially a software platform that will control end-to-end for somebody like you from a facility in China all the way to your door in South Haven, Mississippi, plus wherever it's going after that. Is that correct? It'll get to our door here, and then it's a lot of our retail customers. They they handle the pickup from our facility. So, so they're so. doing their dedicated or their line hauls yep. to your facility. Yep. Now, how long have y'all used Flexport? Funny story. You mentioned Ryan Peterson, their founder. Two thousand, I think the year was two thousand fifteen, two thousand fourteen, maybe. I think fifteen. He actually was at our office with his small team at the time, and just kind of recruiting businesses at the area in the area to use them. And we've been using them since, but it's just kind of neat to see how much they've grown and us kind of being one of their probably, you know, initial 10, 15 clients, but seeing how technology disrupts legacy type of industries is it's fascinating to me. And clearly, you know, Flexport is someone that's doing it very well. Amazon did it very and does it very well. You know, the role technology is going to play in the future as it relates to not only supply chain, but everything in retail is going to be really interesting to, to observe and see. Have y'all had problems with Flexport? You know, you always have the scenarios of, you know, why is this container not shipped or why is the pricing this or that? I mean, that's, you know, you always, it doesn't matter who you work with. If you import the type of volume that, that we import, you're going to have, you're going to have scenarios that pop up that are, that are issues, but uh, as a whole, they've been, great to work with and uh, really, really nice platforms for our teams to interact with. So you are the perfect client for them because you're younger and Whitmore itself seems to be innovative and somewhat of early adopter. So he obviously spotted y'all or researched y'all and your volume. So, I mean, he got on the road early and then you took a chance on them early. And I mean, that's a pretty strong success story for the concept of Flexport where they get criticized a lot to where you know, you've been with them close to seven years now and you're still with them. And now, I mean, they're just continuing to build out their snowball. They are. Yeah, they are. And uh, the technology side of what they do is superior based on what we know of what's out there. So it's, uh, and when I say technology, I mean, there's only so much technology you can bring into something like this, but knowing where every container is along the supply chain line, 
whether it's on a boat and where that boat is or whether it's on uh, rail and knowing exactly where on the rail it is. It's pretty neat to, to see. How do you see the blockchain tying into like maybe the data and the transparency that you see with Flexport? I, I think about this all the time and just wonder how it can impact the retail supply chain industries. And I, I don't know the answer to that, but someone's going to figure it out and we'll see the role that it plays. But, uh, you know, that whole side of, of emerging technologies is just, you know, where that lands in the years to come. No one no one necessarily knows, but it's it's certainly here to stay, whether you believe in Bitcoin or not. The technology underneath all of it is is going to be implemented and is starting to be implemented in, in different ways of life. So we'll just have to see. But what you're saying, or I guess what I'm synthesizing from what you're saying, which by the way, if anybody's not into probably innovation and future stuff and blockchain, they've probably dropped off by now, but that's okay. This is, <laughs> this is good stuff. But what you're saying is, I mean, they have the underlying infrastructure to put something like that into place because they've built everything else from the ground up. Is that a fair statement? I would think so. I mean, the amount of developers, programmers they probably have on their staff is, is incredible. And they're able to cut through all the brokers and the forwarders, you know, turning things two, three, four, five times, whatever, because they're controlling it all through the software. They are. I mean, they still have to maintain relationships with the, the ship lines and, and, you know, contract on our behalf and their client's behalf for with them. Um, so it's not like it's a totally cutting out all the parties, but it's what they have built is a much more efficient way to do it than the, the legacy systems out there. How much was y'all's business affected by the 2008 market crash? So it's interesting. Our business being home products and stuff you need inside your house, we did extremely well during the financial recession, 2008, 2009. We did extremely well during the pandemic, obviously with people at home. It didn't feel like business was good because everything in the world was so terrible, but business was very good. And here we kind of are now on the doorstep of a recession. You know, our belief is we've been in one for four, three, four months already. And we expect, we'll see. I mean, retailers react differently every time. But when we look to our history and how events have unfolded in the past, generally it has led to the belief that our business will be good. And um, we'll see. Uh, right now is just such a, such a weird time in the world with inflation still and the cost of containers from China still outrageously high. And every year is like a new, it's like a new challenge every year. But as we tell our employees, like if business was easy, everyone would, would be doing it. So in every challenge we overcome, we're stronger on the backside. So let's plow through all this stuff now and look back and say, damn, we did it. And uh, we're better because of it. From a competitiveness standpoint, how much does college tennis and competitive sports, how much has that has created a, a strong foundation for running a company like this and leading it in all these challenges you've talked about today? I think it's great. I think uh, anytime we have a chance to like hire an athlete or, or someone that's been in sports growing up or something very competitive, I think it's really good because it is, to me, this is, it's not a sport, it's a business, but it is a business you want to win and you want to do better than your competitors and, and not lose an opportunity to pick up more market share. So in that perspective, it is like a sport you you want to win. So I think the mentality is, is coming from an athlete to a business is really beneficial, highly beneficial. I've heard that so many times and it's neat. You've talked about being friends with Rick Spell. Yeah. I did a previous interview with and you know, that came up there in investment banking and I can list off others. And so nothing that you said is easy, but it's an interesting thing about just kind of tackling it head on. You know, I heard this interview a couple of weeks ago and it talked about 
in China, how a lot of things filter under their five-year plan. So you were talking about the ports and all these things making it seamless. And it's obviously more and more clear that positive or negative what somebody wants to say about China and positive and negative what somebody wants to say about the enforcement of things that go in a different direction than what Power B wants. Mm-hmm. You can see from a business standpoint how it's structured in a way to create opportunity and efficiency and attraction from an exporting standpoint. And when you think about today and you think about your own exposure to China or you think about what's been floated, you know, for the last several months with like Taiwan and things like that, how much of that is a concern for you and your company and your family? Well, I think I think back you know, when the Trump tariffs kind of took place, we and every other company started to diversify a little bit outside of China, which is which was healthy because you get very complacent at times with, you know, staying within a country and that's not always the best thing to do. But I think it's going to be a critical part of our future I, where companies have had a lot of issues based on people I've talked to is when they've tried to, you can't quickly flip your supply chain. If you try to quickly take something from one country to another without doing it the right way. I mean, you can really, you know, that's worse than like a failed software implementation or something. I mean, it can, it can put your company out quickly. So you got to be really smart about how you move supply chains strategically around the world. But China, you know, it's a, I don't know if you've ever been, but it's a, it, you go over there and you see buildings literally that, uh, you know, you, you, you go over there and you see a building starting to be built and three months later, you've got a hundred story building in the air. I mean, just the speed at which a communist government can get stuff done is you, you, you have to be kind of in awe because it's, it's incredible. Um, not that a communist government is good, but the things they can do within their country to keep their economy going and to supply the rest of the world in a way that they have to do for their own economic benefit is it is unbelievable how good they are you know i think what scares me more is the political environment in the united states and what that could look like in terms of trade with china and you know what happens if you have a president like trump that gets back into office and he imposes something even harsher on china than he did the first time around i don't know we'll just have to you know it's just one of those bridges you cross when when it happens but there's a lot of things that keep me up at night and i think you know, I don't, uh, China's not at the top of the list, but there's events that can happen that can certainly make it be at the top of the list really quickly. So I guess with what you're saying with that and with other things that we talked about, there's a lot of things that concern you. But at the end of the day, you have been around for close to 80 years and you've rolled with it time and time again. You had a, what'd you say, a third of your facility in a previous state get torn up by a tornado. You talked about being forced to go become a major importer versus manufacturing most everything here. You talked about all these different things down the line, continue to pivot, innovate, while also having things steady. And so there's several things like that. And there's a lot of things that are just outside of your control as well. And so I guess you've had to work through that. And that's how you think about things like that. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I would uh, I would rather have, if there's some kind of political thing going on and, you know, it creates uncertainty, you would rather have you got to know the rules of the game to play the game, right? So back in the, the Trump tariff days, you know, all this talk about tariffs and this and that. Or, but until it actually happened, you really couldn't play within the new rules of the game, right? Right? You got to, uncertainty is the worst thing for business. So um, 
when we knew COVID hit, okay, COVID was here, we had to create rules to live within this new world, and we did. When the tornado hit, you know, we, that was a chance for us to, to do something we needed to do. Thank God no one was hurt in that scenario. Um, side note, there was product found almost 200 miles away from the location, which was unbelievable, including a, a wallet of a worker with his license in it. I mean, just scary stuff. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the worst thing for business is uncertainty. So is the more uncertainty a political environment can create for for a business owner, the worse the worse it can be for the business. So I'd, I'd rather have I'd rather have policies in place that aren't necessarily great for our business, but they're the policy, and you have to act within it than to always be second guessing what it might be. What concerns you the most about the future? Oh gosh, I think what concerns me most about the future in relation to our business would be just making sure we have continue to build the team here that buys into everything that we've talked about on this call. Like you said, I mean, our family's been doing this for four generations. We know for the most part what it takes from a, a person perspective to, to be able to thrive and in our world and, you know, making sure we have that continuously building that foundation at the bottom of our company that people can grow and move up and, so, yeah, I mean, people are the best thing, but they're also the toughest thing. And in making sure we're all moving uh, in the same direction is, is the most important aspect of making sure we're relevant in the future. What are you most optimistic about or most excited about? I tend to take everything back to people, too. So we, we I mean, there's people in our company that have jumped around to several different roles because their interests have changed over time and seeing seeing people that maybe started as a warehouse employee that are now, you know, knocking on the door, becoming a director of a team or VP or something. I mean, like that kind of stuff, like that really excites me. And I like seeing people grow in that, in that regard. And I'm really optimistic about the space we're in because I think the home, you see it everywhere. I mean, every retailer now has dedicated space for, for home storage organization products. Uh, home has become such a, central part of, of all we do. And I think we're in the right space. Uh, I think it's the right time. And I think we have a, a lot of opportunity ahead of us to, to really continue to, to march forward in a, in a strong way. What do you think about consumer behavior and trends and preferences and spending dollars and the home? Like, what do you see evolving over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years? It's kind of the beauty of our categories. It's a very mature category where you know 50% of our product is 50% of our product that sold well 10 years ago. And 15 years ago, there's, there's very much staples in our categories that people just, they want and they need and they don't care what color or fashion design is on it. But then there's components of our business where we do have to bring real innovation, real fashion type of product into the consumer's home. So I don't know. I mean, we think about technology all the time. We think about, is there, are there ways to incorporate technology into our products somehow or, you know, virtual reality type of stuff, you know? So we're constantly thinking through those ideas, but at the end of the day, people want functional quality items in their house. And that is really just what we are focused on from our product development efforts all the way through every department here is, you know, how do we deliver that for the most cost-effective manner, uh, most functional product for the consumer. When you think about your predecessor being your father, 39 years running this company and everything that happened that we discussed, and then you think about where you're at, which seems like pretty 
early on in your tenure. How do you think about wanting to set things up for when it's time for you to step back? What does that look like to you? Well, I can tell you that my dad, my dad never, he, he always wanted to retire around 65. It was just kind of, you know, his generation, that's the way they think. And that's what he wanted to do. And I always remember he, he said to me, you know, I don't care if it's, if I'm 70, I don't care if I'm 60. I want to retire at 65, but I'm not going to do it unless I am confident that the, the team and people around here are what I believe to be more than capable to keep the company going. So I think that's what it's about. I think, you know, you have to get to a place and get to the company. You know, I've got a goal in my head of what I want to see number wise, the company be before I decide, you know, it's time to, it's time to maybe, you know, move on, but it starts with the people. It ends with the people. Everything's about people and you just got to make sure you get the right, ones around you to give you the confidence to say this company's in good hands and you know we'll see when that day comes i hope i'm work here till i'm 60 years old if that's what it takes 80 years old whatever it is but it's about the people and that's ultimately what will drive any of those decisions is there anything we haven't talked about that you feel is important or valuable based off of everything that we've discussed yeah something that fascinates me probably as much as it fascinates you and speaking more locally about the Memphis area or how many businesses, you know, similar to Whitmore, but, you know, not similar, doing different things. There's so many amazing things being done that you just don't, you don't know about. You don't, I mean, you, before we connected, you probably had no idea what Whitmore does. And now hopefully you, I'm you a fan. A, and hopefully now, yeah, you think it's a good story. Um, Yesterday I had a few beers and one of Rick Spell's deals and which I went there before, but, it's a different flavor, you know, after you get to know somebody. And, yeah, yeah. And it'll be the same thing with Whitmore and the same <laughs> thing with, I'll go down the line, but I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, just the, the cool things and companies in the Memphis area doing, and maybe it's true of many cities, but until you really start talking to people like you do, like you, you just don't realize all the, the neat stuff that is done here and businesses like ours and others that are so under the radar you want to know about, but that are supplying products that are in everyone's homes. I mean, it's, it's neat. Yeah, man. It's a great story. I mean, you got companies like yours that the few that have been around generation after generation after generation that innovate, create, create a lot of jobs. And I mean, I was with somebody yesterday and, you know, they said X amount of millionaires were created from that private company. And, and this was not a publicly traded company. And I'm not trying to just emphasize only the money standpoint, but you think about the power of small business, of really good-sized small business, and you think about the jobs created, you think about the flexibility, you think about the people like yourself and your family that figure it out, that do it in a meaningful way. And then you think about people being with that company for three, four, five decades. I mean, that's the American dream, aside from entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship creates the American dream for the person that wants to be a part of it. And, you know, what y'all have done, we talked about the numbers and the data. It's very impressive. And then what y'all have had to do to continue to innovate and create and adapt, you know, it's strong. And so it's a lot of fun doing this. You know, you only hear about certain things a lot of times from certain people, but there's a lot of value shared. And so I agree with you. And it's been a lot of fun doing it and it'll be fun to see, you know, 10 years from now where things are at and just how these principles continue to guide into the future and just 
even more opportunity created. Absolutely. Well, man, I've got a lot of respect for you. I'm grateful. I mean, I, before even you said that, I was going to share some of those things that I did, but this has been a lot of fun. It's been very valuable and it's neat to hear about everything that y'all have had to do and then how things are continuing to evolve. And it's also been a lot of fun hearing about the technology that y'all adopt, the acquisition that you made, you know, other stuff that you've been doing to continue to adapt and it'll be fun to see how it all shakes out and i really appreciate you joining me yeah i appreciate reaching out and really enjoyed the conversation thanks man hey everybody since you've made it this far in the show i want to share with you something that you may love a few months ago i was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s she lives outside of the united states and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come this interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven Bot Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.